0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I'm Arnaud Richard, founder of Sport Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today I welcome Caitlin Morris, Vice President, Social and Community Impact at Nike. Caitlin has about two decades of experience at Nike in different roles, and today we will speak about Nike's purpose and how the company is helping the world moving forward and accelerate human potential thanks to sport. What a great topic! Hi, Kathleen. How are you today? All good in Portland, seven a.m. with a nice coffee.
1: Yes, I'm. I'm doing very well. Arno. Good morning.
0: <laughs> good morning. First, we love we love to start a podcast uh, by asking you why? How did you fall in love with sport? What is your connection to sport?
1: Yes, you know it's a really interesting question for me because. Growing up, if you had asked me if I was an athlete, I probably would have said no. And yet now when I look at the world and how much kids have stopped moving and how players and stripped from their lives, I realize I grew up playing tennis. I grew up learning to swim. I, I ran. And in fact, I probably really didn't connect to myself as a runner though until I came to Nike because before Nike, I ran by myself. It wasn't until I got to Nike that I ran my first half marathon and I realized what a great community running can be. So, you know, I, it's, you know, my fall in love, I came to Nike not because I fell in love with sport, because I fell in love with Nike's commitment to innovation. And then honestly, I really, really discovered my connection to sport once I came to Nike.
0: Mm, it's quite know, uncommon.
1: Even, it is. I honestly, you know, it's very common at Nike when you interview people to ask them their favorite sports moment or their favorite athlete. And yes, I have one, but that's not, I really, I came because of the corporate responsibility report we published 20 years ago. I thought the work we were doing was so cool, Uh, and yet, you know, now I have a deep connection to sport, and I I understand sport is a metaphor for the human condition. I also have a son who is like me, did not really follow the team sports. He's neither a basketball player nor a soccer player, and when he was about four years old, he would not take off his Peter Pan costume, so it's no (laughs) surprise that what he fell in love with is fencing, He's he's a saber fencer and uh, that's so my connection to sport as a mom is by watching my son fence and it's personally I run probably is where I find my
0: sport community nice and yet you made it to Nike not being an athlete uh, but for your expertise I suppose so you've been at Nike for almost 20 years Um, now soon it's gonna be that celebration I suppose tell us about your journey at Nike what why Nike and what what makes you stay 20 years carrier is quite uncommon these days.
1: So I stay because Nike stays committed to innovation and the people I work with are just so smart. Um, but I got to Nike because every my career has been a series of firsts. So when I graduated from university, I had a history degree and no job prospects. And I went to Hungary. The, wall, the, the Berlin Wall had recently fallen. It was 92. And at that point, Americans were sort of that we 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 carried secret sauce from the West and we could do jobs that really weren't qualified to do, I would sort of say. But so my first year, I taught English in high school and that I I could do very well. But my second year, I worked for a consulting firm in Budapest. And I I really, I learned a lot in Hungary, so much. But when I went back to the United States, I ended up being the first sort of knowledge center manager at a consulting firm. And then I was recruited to be the first government affairs in-house person for Mattel, the toy company, La Poupe Barbie. Yeah. Uh, and, uh and at Mattel, I was there when they were building their code of conduct, and I volunteer I was working for the senior go- government affairs VP, and I volunteered to sort of be the Sherpa for the team, and I I sort of took notes, recorded everything until I knew more than anyone else on that team, and I became the first corporate responsibility manager, and that's really how my career, I they say, started in this field. When I went to Nike I, in two thousand three. It was um, to go in their corporate communications team, but to do issues management, responding to questions around labor rights in the supply chain, which made sense because I had done corporate communications at Mattel and I had done the actual work of being in factories and visiting and and looking at audits. And so I had sort of the the combined skill set. And so I started there and then I went into stakeholder engagement around labor rights at Nike and business integration, shaping our scorecards and how we would how we would work. And so the first half of my career at Nike was really all in that labor rights space. Uh, and then after my child was born, I decided I needed a new challenge. And the one that Nike was really taking on in earnest was how to get the world to move again. In about a decade ago, we released Design to Move, which was sort of our big body of work that sort of said, hey, the world has stopped moving, it's costing us trillions. And that investing in sport is actually an incredibly efficient way to get after a lot of different things. So it's not just about obesity or mental health or community building or safety. It's all of those things combined. And that's what makes sport such a powerful investment. And so then so then I went from sort of being someone who's working on factors in the supply chain, tackling this systemic issue, and really falling in love with this work. And, and since since then, kind of the team has evolved around me. The Access to Sport team merged with our global community investment team so that the company had one center of philanthropy and social impact. And I had the pleasure of running the North America team and then all of the geographies. And now I have, have the pleasure of running or working for, I should say, the whole
0: team. Mm, interesting. I love what you say. Sport is such a powerful investment, um, not only because you're at Nike and, of course, your core business is based on um, people who are moving and each one of them is an athlete but, uh, such a powerful investment, we're, we're going to go back to that let's speak about the mission of Nike, Nike's mission is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete um, in the world That's right. and, and your purpose is to move the world forward through the power of sport which comes to, which very much aligns with what you said, such a powerful investment uh, but in your own words what does it mean to be, you know, working on social and community impact? Because you're tied to all these vice president of social and community impact. And I'm sure many people wonder, well, what is this? It sounds like the best job in the world, but what does it mean?
1: It is well, it is the best job in the world, but it is the best job in the world because of how we've structured the work. Which is to say that the social and community impact team gets after big social issues at scale. And we also invest hyper-locally at a community level. And really that combination is very powerful. Um, I, you know, one of the things we've been talking about as a team is we have these different por- portfolios of work. We have Made to Play, which is our commitment to getting kids moving around the world because we know that active kids lead to a brighter, more equi- equitable future. Then we also have inclusive communities, which frankly is almost like it, if you want kids to play. You also need to give them the, the communities that needed the basics of safety, economic empowerment, social justice. And that's partly sport and it's probably not sport. And then we have, we are employee and community engagement work, which empowers everything we do because employees are the heartbeat of community impact for us. And Nike employees really passionately care about a lot of different things and they bring their energy to it. And then finally we have social responsibility, which is sort of, a little bit of the catch-all of those things we do to stand up as a company to respond to what the world needs. I think we're finding that that's increasingly having a a sustainability bent to it a little bit in terms of, for example, disaster relief. This week alone, we've looked at um, we've looked at Fiona, the hurricane. We've looked at the earthquake in Mexico. We're still dealing with Pakistan. I mean, sort of the world, climate change is impacting at such an incredible rate that disaster response needs to sort of be a, a, a smaller part of the portfolio now becomes the debating point about how large we, we, we can make it based on, on the needs around the world. And so, you yeah, asked sort of what, how would I describe social community impact? For us, it's about how do you create a, an active world where everybody belongs?
0: Okay. How do you create an active world where everybody belongs? Everybody, right. everybody,
1: and everybody.
0: Yes, might be the, the key. Four words, <laughs> three words. <laughs> um, but you you mentioned, you know, you want to address big social issues at scale. How to choose? I mean, there's so many complex things happening in the world, lots of topics from um climate change, gender equality, education, hunger. If you look at the SDGs, as uh, the seventeen SDGs yeah. from the United Nations, how do you choose where you want to make an impact? Because you, you cannot tackle Every battle, you have to choose where you want to be efficient.
1: Yes. So I would sort of say, well, let's start with sport and made the play. You know, when 10 years ago, we sort of said, the world has stopped moving. What do we want to do about it? And we at, we, we, at that point, we were very focused on sort of creating the architecture for a movement. And for a movement, you need sort of simple calls to action. And that was to reintegrate physical activity back into everyday life. And they give children early positive experiences in sport, because frankly, we know that it's not just about them giving them the the physical literacy, it's about them building literally the dopamine pleasure centers in their brain, such that they find sports, something that they want to go to again and again later in life. And it made made the play, then became Nike's commitment to this framework we laid out for the world. And we're very focused on that. Uh, And, you know, it is enlightened self-interest to be committed to getting kids active to your point, you know, the world, sport can't thrive if the world isn't moving and sport sport needs children to love it. Um, But then on the other issues, I do think for us, it was about the voice of the athlete because we've always been authentic to athletes. Athletes provide us the insight around our product performance, but also around the issues. What matters to them matters to us. And so when you think about the first equality spot that we put out, we did that all for the voices of our athletes uh and i think that that and then finally the, when we say athlete athlete asterisk we talk about elite athletes consumers and our employees and we listen very much to the, to the voice of our employees as well as a matter of fact when you look at our inclusive community portfolio a lot of it is aligned to the network communities the, 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 net, the network organizations and the communities they reflect so nike has employee resource groups And in the U.S., they're aligned against eight different marginalized or non-dominant communities. Uh, And and so then our community investments reflect those. So, for example, Native American community. I think only something like 4% of philanthropy in the U.S. goes to Native Americans. It's really underrepresented. And so how do we invest there? Um, Military veterans matter a lot in the U.S. as a community. And how do we invest there? And so those community, the networks bring help from a talent perspective, but they also share what matters to them in their
0: community. Okay. Um, Okay. So that's how you, in some ways, that's how you choose the topics. Uh, And once you decide, okay, I want to uh, make sport accessible, make-to-play for the kids. By the way, which, uh, what ages do you target?
1: So Made to Play is very much focused on 7 to 12, yeah. But and that's driven by the fact that uh, that's that sort of the ages at which kids' preferences form. And it's also old enough, right that we could get into systems to make change. And if you were really look developmentally, gross motor skills start in that more in that toddler era, age, but You still have time to influence and shape where they are when you're hitting seven to 12. I'd also say we, it bleeds a little bit for us because the 12 to 13 is also when adolescence hits and you have another big drop off. And so what, what we're doing and why we're doing it shifts over time at seven to eight, you're trying to give them the ability, confidence, and desire to play at 12 and 13. You're trying to kind of explain to them that they should be striving for brave, not perfect you know, and so sort of what, what what we're doing and how we're doing it shifts a little bit over time, but it's mostly that seven to 12 is made to play.
0: Yeah, interesting. And after, yeah, there's a chance to drop. Uh, we also see that sometimes at the age of third, well, if you don't give them this feeling of positive experience at that age, they will most likely never have it. And then there's a risk once they get teenagers, that's a drop off. Uh, yeah. But I- yeah,
1: the kids define much earlier than people realize whether or not they think they're athletes. By the age of eight or nine, they're either self-defining as an athlete or they're not. Hmm. And and if they don't have the basic skills, you know, the shame factor is incredibly high. Kids don't like to be embarrassed. Period. Uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe that's just a little bit of the difference. I think in that seven to twelve period, it's about fitting in. And then now twelve and on is like standing out, Um, you know. That's where you sort of see the insight showing, like girls posting things on Instagram, and if they don't get a like, they take it down.
0: And it's uh, it's interesting because in Norway, I don't know if you know that. Well, I I suppose you do. Yeah, so kids are not competing before a certain age. I think it's fourteen, if I remember well. Yeah. Because you, you don't want that shame effect in some ways. Uh, you want them to enjoy and play. Uh, and
1: and I was just that, that, that really sort of this idea of this athlete development model. Yeah. And it's idea that competition is good, but it has to be introduced at the right age.
0: Yeah. 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 And it's not for everyone, competition. Um, yes. So make to play, uh, which is obviously uh, a fantastic program. Concretely, what happened? How do we measure the impact? How do we work the athletes to design the programs? Can you let us know more in detail absolutely, what happens?
1: Absolutely. So I would sort of say when we look, um, our 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 investment strategy is driven at some level by aligning to our key cities. Because as a company, Nike's full. My team may drive the investments on the ground. The real power comes when we compare that with the brand and the storytelling and the inspiration. So, aligning to where the business is matters. So, but that, but we also wanted to look and sort of see how we serve kids who need it most. So, let's take Paris as an example. We've done a robust city mapping, taking different variables in terms of where do girls live, how many how many football clubs do they access, what other what other sport um, centers do they have to play, and and then what data exists from the city around participation levels. And then, so if you have, we map, right, well, here are the heat maps of where you have girls and you have girls who aren't playing. Then you do insights around, well, why aren't they playing? Is it, is it that they don't have awareness? Is it the cultural? Because in their, maybe, maybe where they where they're, in their culture, it's not approved for girls to go play or their primary responsibility is to help the mother at home. So, so then you have to get into the insights around the why. And then you're designing interventions on the ground. Or finding partners who already have them and supporting them and elevating them, and that's one. That's one thing I think that's to say about our portfolio. It's one part investing in programs that already exist and do great work, and other times identifying a gap in the field and partnering with organizations to create something new.
0: So it's very much targeted. Uh, so it's a. Uh, it's not a, a kind of one pager with a you know, fit for all solution. It's a uh, very much targeted to local needs.
1: It's targeted on the, in terms of on the ground, it's absolutely targeted. And then when you think about building tools at scale and going digital, then you have to do something very different. Then you have to think about, well, what is the common denominator and how do we build things that everyone can use? So again, for example, we worked with iCoach Kids and Leeds University to build a digital tool that's integrated into the Nike training app in Europe. And on that, that's much more about the recognition that Across Europe and the United States, very few coaches are trained. It's a high, it's a large volunteer workforce of people well-intentioned who don't necessarily know how to deliver deliver coaching very well. And giving them the basics around just the emotional safety that you need to create for children, as well as basics on just sort of how to coach, is something that that is a universal need. So that so there's sort of there's what we do at scale through digital tools for the field, and then there's what we do on the ground that's very targeted and and like hyper-localized.
0: Hmm. Yeah, learn and scale. Um if we if we speak about inclusive communities, uh, which is a topic that has been growing uh, in the past year. But it, so what are completely your actions? Um can you help us understand? Because it goes not only from helping communities, but it goes all the way to developing products. Uh that helps different communities to, um, how could I say? I'm sure you're going to say it better than I do. I <laughs> will leave it to oh, you.
1: Well, it. I, it's so interesting because my brain didn't go there, but you gave me the prompt and I think I understand. So, so yes, product is part of what Nike offers. When I think about what the business brings to the table, we, one of our, our great strengths, obviously, is product. We innovate, we bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. So, for example, when you think about um, Muslim communities, the the sport hijab mm-hmm. and the you know and the reason you have a sport hijab is because a traditional hijab with pins made of fabric is can it, the pins can fall out on the floor the fabric gets wet and it's hard to hear and so the sport hijab has a function in terms of making it easier for girl, women who choose to wear the hijab to compete in sport and then what we did as a community team is figure out how do we distribute the hijab to girls who are ready to wear it with a coaching guide, such that if you're in a team where maybe some girls want to wear the job and some don't, how do you make that a conversation around inclusion, around recognizing their choice, around and get distributing it to them the same way we distribute the bra, which is in a sensitive, respectful way. So that's one example. And then you might be thinking about like the, uh, the the product innovation driven through lens of different abilities or disabilities of people's bodies. The fly Flye shoe was inspired by a child a kid writing that it was hard to tie his shoes and yet I'm sure it serves so many others based on that one consumer insight
0: hmm. if you, uh, let's say let's take an example the so hijab how do you work to design this product what is the innovation process to come to a solution that I suppose works very well uh, for the women athletes that are Muslim and needs uh, wants to wear hijab
1: so I would sort of, I'm going to put a caveat here and say I am not on the product design team. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, sure.
1: And I, so what I can speak to more is almost the guide we created in, distri- in distribution with the hijab. And yet I would say the process is very similar, which is to sort of say, you gather insights from the consumer, you 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 beta test you, you, you and you repeat. So I think for us around building the guide, it was around, all right, first, how we assemble experts from, from around the globe Um, around the around the hijab because my my team frankly none none of the women there wear one we wanted to be sure that when we wrote the guide we had an honest authentic reflection of what we were trying to educate people on then it was building out that coaching tool and testing it in, in at a muslim school with girls understanding how well did the distribution process go and refining and so that that really um i think i think whenever you're doing product design it's a for me, it's always about that sort of the consumer decides, right? And so how you lead with their insights, build for them, test and and refine as needed.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So sports bra was also a topic um, yes. in that, you know, consumer needs. Do um, you want to mention something about the sports bra donations?
1: Sure, sure yeah. because this we actually started with the sports bra. So um, about four years ago, we had a conversation recognizing that a lot of girls don't play sport when, they, when, when their body's mature because they do not have a sports bra. And again, that's, that's a Nike sweet spot, right? We have many bras, many choices. But, but to give a girl her first bra can be an awkward, uncomfortable experience. And we wanted to flip that negative into a positive. And so it became really about thinking about how to give her the bra, not just the bra itself, but literally how she receives it. And so we wrote an entire guide for coaches around hay, as well as for the girls. So for the girls, we wrote a self-fit card. So if you've never worn a bra before, or if you've never worn a sports bra before, I'm saying it's supposed to fit a little tight, but it shouldn't be cutting off your circulation, you know. So you stick two fingers under, and if you can fit the two fingers under, it's probably right. Uh, and uh, and then working with the, with the coaches on, Hey, you're going to, if you're going to distribute sports bras, which they do need, do it in a private space. You don't want to do it on the gym floor with a bunch of boys watching. Uh, you need to have a place for them to try it on. That's comfortable and safe. We actually gave them bags so they could carry either the sports bra or their other bra in a discreet way in and out of the gym, you know, and all these things, um, they really matter. And I had a chance to see one of our early beta tests of the product. What was interesting is fathers bringing their daughters there, fathers who maybe didn't have the support of, their, of a wife, uh, and they were desperate to give their daughter bra, but They just couldn't do it on their own. you know. <laughs> yeah, like, Thank you so much. Uh, and and then we realized that actually sometimes when you're dealing with co- community, communities where the coaches may not have had a sports bra before either, and so then we realized we actually had to train the coaches on sports bra fit. And so it's a whole cycle and, and, and system here, but, you know, as we've done it, we've now distributed, I think maybe 75,000 bras with, with bra guides. But one thing that, but the, it's a constant iteration because we've done the first bra guide and then we learned from, from how we approached the hijab guide, went back and revised the bra guide in terms of the sensitivity and the conversation we wanted to have around inclusivity uh, we partnered with our bra, our actual bra design team on the fit card, and that's and that now actually I think shows up in the in the kids bra or the girls bra product is that bra fit card. Hmm. That's a great example, actually. The the partnership across the business to make something really matter.
0: And It's a partnership, and it's not only about the product. It's about how you introduce the solution when it comes to sensitive um, sensitive. I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but products. Uh, because when we speak about women's sport, uh, most of the time in most of the countries, it's, there's a, a big lack of understanding of what happens in the in the little girls uh, and the needs that they have, if they, uh, the needs that you have to address if you want them to play sport and to keep practicing, lack of local rooms, lack of knowledge are. Because a lot of the coaches in many places are men first. That's <laughs> uh, right. So, so there's I, a lot of development to be done on understanding the women and how to help them uh, become athletes by little simple things uh, eventually.
1: Yes. And w- it's great that you mentioned that, Arnaud, because I know at least in the US, I forget this is the, st- the st- statistic for Europe, but in the US, only a quarter of all coaches are female. Yeah, And, and so to your point, you don't have a natural role model. And at the same time, we need men to be allies and understand how to coach girls and how to create those safe spaces for them. And so we, 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 we when we built our, how to, how to coach girls guide, it was written for men and women because this point is you do need men to understand that if the locker room is far away or transportation isn't safe, you're going to lose girls. Um, and even language, things like the word guys, I'm not sure if you have it, it's so different in different languages, but in the, in the, in the English language, hey, guys, it feels very kind of like, well, I'm not a guy. Yeah. Um, and I, I am, I don't, yeah, I think, I think language matters in subtle ways that we don't always recognize. But, but we're also really interested in how we recruit and train and celebrate female coaches. And so a big part of our focus right now is we've been really, we've done a lot around the training component of coaches. Now, how do we recruit the right coaches into the field?
0: How do you do that?
1: It's a really good question. Um, I think that part of it is creating spaces where women women feel welcome. So we did a wonderful program in Los Angeles with, with the L.A. Rec and Parks Department it was a Women Coach LA Summit where we basically a couple of things. First, we hosted the event in the part of LA where we wanted to we wanted to capture people, so it was not off on the beach in Santa Monica. It was in the heart of Los Angeles. The second thing is we had wonderful female inspirational speakers from former athletes to current athletes to coaches, uh, and then we also we did training on site with with our model of coaching training. And and the whole idea was to pull through these women from having fun and realizing they could coach and having them sign up to be coaches in the rec and parks. But that was one event, and how we do that at scale is going to be our kind of our big challenge, I think, in the years to come.
0: Yeah, because realities are very different depending on countries. Uh, but it's a challenge everywhere. I mean, in all the countries, there's a need for more women coaches. Um, yes.
1: and. So- and- I think that there are a couple of things here. One is focusing on the recruiting technique. The other is, I think, as we invest in how we coach on the basics. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about creating emotional safety for kids and recognizing that the most important thing you can do for a young child is make them feel welcome and that they have a place to play. They belong in playing. But the second thing is you do need to get fundamental movement skills in and And this is a place where if you're if you're a woman and you didn't grow up playing, how are you going to coach that? And so we've been working with the Youth Sports Trust on a movement for sport play kit, which really gets at building that physical literacy through games with children. I think that's going to be huge, actually. When we think about how we bring in female coaches because it's it's one thing to get female athletes, well, everyone's an athlete, but you know people, people who perceive themselves as athletes to be coaches. It's another thing to bring in mothers or a big opportunity who but who may not have played sport themselves as a child, how do they become coaches?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing is to get them in, um, create a connection and emotional bound, so the wish. Then the next challenge is how you give them opportunities. Uh, because uh, that's the next step. What what can you do with that? Uh, speaking about women, uh, you have big programs uh, with you have the Black Girls Code, Black Girls Ventures. Yes. Uh, can, can, can you share with us a bit more about that? On why and how you do it?
1: Absolutely, and this goes back a little bit to the conversation we were starting around the different portfolios and how we invest. Yeah. And in Made to Play, we really have a, we have a point of view because it's about sport. We lean in and we've identified critical problems in sport. And we often try to kind of bring some innovation solutions in the area of social justice. I sort of say and economic empowerment. We've been much more identifying who we want to amplify. Who's already doing great work. Black girl ventures is a great example of that. So Shelly Amidadi Bell um, is an amazing woman who started black girl ventures in her house in DC with like 30 women. And you know black women i think only get 4 to 6% of the venture capital in the united states and so the question for us was how do we as nike elevate her not just not just giving her a grant but actually elevating her and her work because frankly nike brings a halo effect to that stuff and so when we gave her 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 money that was one thing but the big part of it for me i think was when the brand put her on a billboard and featured her at all star and did a pitch competition live that quadrupled the amount of private capital investment that she got. And so Black Girl Ventures, for me, is a, another great example of my team can identify great partners on the ground. But if we can then partner with the brand to really elevate their story and inspire others, that's where the magic happens.
0: And that's where Nike is courageous sometimes, standing for standing for posers and taking positions that are not, that could be seen as risky. Uh, in some ways because all of your consumers are not believing in the same things Uh, but at the end uh, it's just fantastic stories and a lot of impact positive Uh, impact
1: yeah and you know it's interesting because it doesn't feel risky to us it just feels like the right thing to do
0: Mm, natural
1: yeah it does feel natural
0: Mm, the same with the Kaepernick campaign for example yes Yeah. yeah still a lot do not do that. Uh, so uh and how far so you started with this Black Earth venture, you help as uh, a founder and his team and her team uh to grow, uh to to grow by different means. So you communicate so that them there's more awareness on what they do, which as a consequence, if I understand well, helps them raise more capital, you amplify yeah. the content uh and the capacity of the entrepreneurs uh, that have fantastic stories. How do you think you could scale this? It's, it's not easy. It's not an easy piece as well.
1: Um, I think scaling scaling the work we do in the inclusive community portfolio, part of what we've discussed is really how are we changing the face of philanthropy and, and how are we investing in leadership? And Blackwell Ventures isn't philanthropic on on its own, but it is sort of it is changing the face of venture capital in that sense. But this is where you know, if you think about sort of oak trees versus mycelium, you know, so this is like the the whole the whole network roots piece of like, and so what we talked about there is sort of like how do we actually bring leaders together, create the space for them to connect. And strengthen the movement as a whole, because if you look at what we do around the Black community and the Latino community and the Native American community, they all have different needs, but so they also all need that 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 amplification that ability to connect and grow. And so we really we really in this space look more at the trust based philanthropy model. And it's you know I trust based philanthropy. Not maybe everyone this this podcast will know, but. The principles there are much more around trusting the organizations you're funding to know what they're doing and giving them the the space and latitude to do so, and then bringing more than your check to the work. And that's where Black Girl Ventures is a great example of that, as would be Black Girls Code. In terms of Black Girls Code, the way we brought more than a check was much more around a hackathon where we brought Nike employees to work with Black Girls Code to solve problems that way. And the employee engagement can be huge. Um, but so I think when you say, how do we bring it at scale? You know, there, there, I think part of the scale is just helping build a movement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Scale is my, my, not piece of right word, but let, let me make a a reference. Um, if you impact a, a, a kid's life, one kid, you impact a lot more than a kid because you impact his family his surrounding and yeah. his future family. Yeah. And it's be the same with the entrepreneurs in some ways, because entrepreneurs are so, as movers and move the work forward. Uh, so when you impact entrepreneurs, whose ramifications are just huge.
1: Absolutely. I think that if you look at um, Black World Ventures and all the different entrepreneurs they have impacted, and at your two point, those entrepreneurs then run businesses that impact their communities locally. Uh, but I, I think also, as a, as a conversation, when, when we bring them together as cohorts and as collectives, that also says something. Um, because their, vo- their voice gets a little bit louder when it's a chorus, you know?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there is any, I mean, your, your Portfolio of Action is, uh, I recommend everyone to see the Nike Impact Report. Uh, portfolio of actions is, is just huge. Uh, so is there another one that you would like to to mention today before we go back to uh, to the second part of the conversation?
1: In terms of the portfolio, um, gosh.
0: If not, I've got a question for you.
1: Go ahead. Uh, question, because there are so as they like try to pick your favorite child, they're all my favorites. So how do I say? <laughs> you know?
0: That's one of my questions that comes after. So I will avoid that one. <laughs> all right. Uh Yeah. What my do you favorite see? There a child?
1: It's easy. I only have one. So. <laughs> uh,
0: if you look ahead, um, I mean, you've done a lot uh the last ten years. When when you start with Make To Play and inclusive communities, employees, community, social responsibility, climate change, and if I'm correct, the three pillars of Nike are people, uh, play, and planet. Awesome. Yeah. So, but what is your view on what's, what is the future of social and community impact? Uh, where do you want this to, to grow?
1: Okay, so there I, I think I do have a point of view. The future of social and community impact is to get really sharp on our measurement and evaluation strategy, to tie our goals to the business. They're not social and community impact goals, they're goals for the company, and to increasingly find intersection between people, planet, and play. So a great example of that intersection would be um, a partnership we just announced with the Trust for Public Land. Trust for Public Land is a nonprofit in the U.S. It really focuses on the power of outdoor spaces and the, and increasing equity to outdoor spaces. Um, and they're, they're probably most famous in some ways for, for big park investments, but they actually do a lot in urban areas. And so our, our partnership with them is working on greening schoolyards, for example. So taking black asphalt and turning it into places with trees and grass. And and what they're going to measure as a result of greening these schoolyard spaces is both kids' participation, how many of them go outside and play sport, but also literally climate cooling. How well do these spaces mitigate the effects of climate change? Because we know that the communities that are hit hardest by climate change are usually marginalized, low-income, and they're hit first and get helped last. And so this is a great intersection for me of people, planet, and play because we're dealing with equity, we're dealing with kids and their ability to play, and we're dealing with the climate.
0: Yeah. So this is Am I correct if I say um, measurement tools that are, how can I say, connected in a way that it's a lot more holistic? It's not you, you target only one thing, but you connect these to different um, uh, relevant topics climate change, education, uh, playing, for, for example, and you want to measure a global impact of a program, for example. Because if you do, if you do that, that would justify more investment in that. Because as you said again, and I love that sentence, sport is such a powerful investment.
1: Yes, you're right. So a set of integrated indicators help make the broader case for investing in sport is a great outcome for us to have. Another example that would be work we're supporting with UNESCO. UNESCO for life Yes, exactly. And UNESCO is trying to also now look at different sets of indicators, not just physical activity, but also then academic performance. And all the things we, we outline in the human capital model. And I think if that if that works, that's another way to make that case. So I think it's sort of integrate integrated indicators in terms of the world, and then also integrated indicators within Nike. So um, I think companies, when we when we're doing social community impact, the, the best chance of us truly having an impact and us sustaining it is for it to be aligned to what the business needs. And, mm-hmm. and so a great example of that is, you know, whether it's Black Girl Ventures and telling inspiring stories to consumers or partnering with the bra product team in figuring out how to do a bra fit card, those are, those are ways where the work goes beyond just social and community impact that aligns across Nike.
0: Could we say we need a social business case model?
1: Mm. Um, yes, we could. Uh, I think, but I, I think it's more than the, the case hypothetically is already there. No one disagrees at a conceptual level that companies need to do the right thing. And the, the enlightened self-interest is exactly that. I think where it gets more challenging is actually measuring and having five-year targets and goals that reflect those.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. that's highly interesting. And as, as you say, in most uh, of the cases, there's uh, no measurement. Uh, interesting. In this journey, I mean, this beautiful journey. Uh, what has been the most challenging for you? I mean, what are your key learnings? Because I'm sure everything has not been easy. I'm sure you've tasted a lot of things. <laughs> sometimes it went very well, sometimes not that well. Um, so what would you say would be the key learnings of that journey? And what so, would you recommend to people who want to get into that kind of position?
1: Uh, uh, my key learnings, first of all, I feel so fortunate, frankly, to have been on this team for a decade because it's take, things take longer than you expect. You know the the messages and the plans that we thought we would achieve in three years, I'm now seeing some of it in ten. So the first is that time time moves in mysterious ways and not always at the pace that you would like. Uh, you know, and and so I think patience is a big one. The second one is frankly the need to simplify your story, you know when I started this work, we had a giant systems map with all the dots and the connections. And, and as you figured out by now, I can go down a lot of different rabbit holes with you and discuss things. But when you're trying to convince the business to do something, you have to have a really simple story. It has to be emotionally compelling and it has to be simple. And you have to deliver it with conviction. Even if I can tell you all in the back of my mind, I give you the 20 reasons why things won't work. I cannot share this. I have to be sort of like, these three things really will make a difference in the world and get people on board that way. Uh, and I'd say the biggest challenge almost has been the, the number of challenges in the world. To your point, asking, you asked earlier, how do we focus? It, it is hard. Um, I think companies are expected to do a lot, a lot of different things. And the beauty of a portfolio is in some ways you you let you you flip-flop less because you're doing everything. On the other hand, your rate of progress against any issue is slower because you've got it in balance with with three other issues.
0: And one question that I always um, wonder, what you say is very interesting about time uh, and priorities, Um, give time to time. I mean, time is unpredictable. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of, sometimes we can feel in big companies uh, that there's a fashion effect. Uh, you know, when, the, when the topic raises because something happened, then something is done. There's a big announcement, but at the end, the impact is after 5, 10, 15 years. It's not in the announcement. Mm-hmm. How do you manage this need of uh, communicating and marketing, which is important, uh, You know, all the good things that you do, with building long-term programs.
1: So this is one of the things I think makes my team unique, is that we are in it for the long-term sustainable change. And I like to sort of say that we are the handshake with the community. And so that, you know, yes, there may be a big announcement, but long after the announcement is gone, we are still executing on that commitment. We do not we do not walk away from commitments that we make. You know, and I think that, you know, when you look at the black community, commitment is a great example. There have been articles around where did the money actually go. I can tell you where it went. We put out a press release almost every every year as we, as we release those grants. So we are 100% committed to seeing things through when we make a public commitment, without a doubt. And then in terms of what's fashionable, yes, you know, sport. Um, this is why looking at sport through a holistic lens is so important, because you know, when, when we did design and we put out this human capital model, as I sort of said, and the human capital model discussed the various ways that that sport in, delivers on human potential, from physical to cognitive to financial to community. And I think that's important because for a while, the whole world was focused on obesity. Now the whole world is focused on mental health. But we haven't had to change our strategy because our strategy has always been invested in the power of sport. And we know the our power of sport. Helps you with your physical health as well as your mental health, as well as through your community. And that I think is really powerful in terms of our ability to sustain our strategy.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Going back to the personal challenges that a uh, professional like you can face, um, if you not an easy question, but if you could add a skill to the meaning you have, um, just like that easy one, easy skill to get.
1: Easy skill, I'd add speaking Chinese fluently.
0: Why is that?
1: Because, um, well, first of all, I love languages and I think they're so important. But I never learned Chinese. I think I think my time has passed. And the China market hmm. is incredibly important for Nike. It's incredibly important for our work. And my team there works so hard to do everything basically in two languages because they always have to translate translate things back to English. And I just wish I spoke fluent Chinese. I think it'd be really helpful for the work and for the team. <laughs>
0: One great advice you've received, and you say uh, you would say, "Oh, this is, I would love to share it."
1: Piece of great advice. Um, uh, can I share two?
0: Yeah, of course. So
1: I think I think one was um, you live and die by the stories. Yeah, sorry. You live and die by the stories about you, and so you know I. It's, it's really, that may be unique to to the culture I'm in, but, but it's important to understand the power of stories and that they, they basically data, data is one piece, but really story is everything. And the second one I'd be sort of really about the, the, what I mentioned earlier about keeping it simple and set and selling it with positivity, like. People, people have to believe it, and they have to understand it, and that means often stripping away a lot of the detail, and and the what ifs and the could be's, and just sort of being like, no, this this is our way forward.
0: Yeah, you live and die. And and speaker we had recently, Brett Cosper mentioned mentioned something. I love that sentence. It's all about dreams and memories. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And
1: it's so funny you should say that because I think you're right. I think Nike, you know, we like to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete. And that inspiration is really in the in the dreams, right? Um, and yet Nike is also we've just turned 50. And yeah. on the one hand, we're very forward-looking, and on the other hand, we we actually are very proud of our heritage. So it's like dreaming for the future, but me- remembering what, what got us here.
0: Yeah. And the stories that what connects the dreams and the memories.
1: Yes. I like that.
0: Yeah. Um, What do you like the most in what you do?
1: Um, I love the fact that I get to work on really interesting issues and connect dots. I love I'm a connector. I love to connect best practices. I love to connect people. I love, I love the the opportunity to connect and I love my team. Um, I work with some of the smartest, most passionate, giving people on the planet and I feel lucky to work with them every
0: day. Indeed, indeed. Um, to to close, um, I don't like that word, but uh, I, I believe it's a start of a conversation, more than a closing. But yes. I've got uh, I've got a ritual, which is uh, a few very simple questions uh, okay. for quick answers as well. Yeah. Uh, some will be easy, some a little less maybe. Um, favorite all-time athlete?
1: An all-time athlete? Oh, Kobe Bryant.
0: Oh. Uh, yeah. Why?
1: Because um, I had the chance to work with him on Mamba League, and mm. he really, really cared cared about about giving girls access to sport. And um, he grew up a lot as a person. He was wonderful.
0: The hmm. very nice. Uh, what is your favorite event?
1: My favorite event. Yeah. Like sporting event.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh gosh. Um, hmm.
0: Wimbledon. Oh. The church of tennis
1: yes and I used to grow up watching it with my parents every summer so it has positive, positive family associations for me
0: <laughs> June family moments Um what is your favorite word petrichor what
1: petrichor petrichor is the smell of rain hitting the pavement in the summer As a name it's called petrichor
0: oh wow what does what it represent for you uh
1: re- it represents um it represents summer i grew up in virginia and you have a lot of thunderstorms in the summer and so you know you go outside to play and on the blacktop on the on the street you could smell you know after the rain and the steam comes up you really get that smell and so whenever i smell it it smells like summer to me
0: Oof! before the indian summer that is fantastic there as well um what is your least favorite word prejudice Speaks by himself. What profession or service on your own would you like or would you have liked to attend?
1: What, 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 what profession
0: or service on your own? What job was okay. yeah.
1: Well, what job would I like to have done other than this one?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, I would like to have been an actress. An actress? Yeah.
0: <laughs> You're like convincing.
1: I love the theater.
0: Nice. And what is the one you would not have loved to do?
1: Statistician.
0: So you have your team working on all the stats that you have together.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's like uh, me and Excel don't get along very well.
0: <laughs> Good. If you had one more hour every day, three hours, what would you do?
1: Mm, that's hard because I have a long list of self-improvement activities. Um, right now, I'd get on the ERG and practice rowing because I picked up that as a sport.
0: So give it more time to that. Yeah. And the last one, if if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: That I did good, I think.
0: I think considering what you do. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, although you know, um professionally that part is easy, but to do good with your you know, with your with your family, with your friends to to have given to people. I think, yeah, it's a really interesting one.
0: It is, it's not an easy one. If I understand what you say, it goes a lot with love.
1: Um. Yeah, you know, it's sort of um, David Brooks uh, did a lovely New York Times article, which I think then turned into a book, which sort of talks about sort of like the, you know, we, we get performance reviews for work, we don't get performance reviews for life. And yet if we did, that's what God would be handing out the performance review for your life, right? I'd like to get a highly successful in my life, not just in my work.
0: Wow. Interesting one. Well, food for soap. I will read that one. Kathleen, I thank you so much for your precious time to share with us at the SIS Masters podcast. Anything else you want to add?
1: Um... Maybe only that because this is sport and innovation work that I believe that there is a future for all of us to make sport more impactful in the world. It has great potential. The innovation comes in lots of different forms, whether it's product or services or how we show up in the community to partner better with them to help them impact the world. That, um, that I love. I love. The, I love the concept, and I love being here with you. Thank you, Arno.
0: Thanks to you, Kathleen. I wish you the best. Uh, to you your team your family and we'll be in touch
1: same to you cheers bye-bye
0: thank you all for listening to a new sis master's podcast we'd love you to subscribe please leave a review or rate the podcast it will help us improve we'd love to see you in the next episode enjoy